Hello, everybody. Welcome to Two Guys Five Movies. It is April twentieth. This is episode sixty nine, and this is one of your co-hosts, Chris Gasperi. This is uh, Frank Pelican. And folks, with episode sixty nine, we had the opportunity to take the low road, but we didn't. Um, tonight's episode is the top five Ingmar Bergman movies, which might be the classiest fucking episode we've ever done, Frank. <laughs> yeah. What What do you think the Low Road podcast would have been? Like top five, like teen sex comedies or something? Something like that. Yeah, like meatballs. Yeah, right. Zapped, meatballs, porkies. What's your top five teen sex comedies? Uh, I was named, yeah, Zapped, meatballs, okay. porkies, ski school. Uh huh. And, uh, hmm. Uh, Revenge of the Nerds? Maybe, maybe, I, yeah, yeah. Revenge of the Nerds. Yeah. Right. I think Revenge of the Nerds is more of a. I think it's broader than just a sex comedy. Yeah, it's true. I think yeah. like American Pie is mm. a sex comedy. Right, right. Revenge of the Nerds is like a classes. <laughs> it's an examination of you know wealth versus intelligence and popularity versus merit. Sure. Yeah. So. This episode is the third um, that we've ever done in terms of focusing on a specific director and their films. Uh, the first one was episode two, if you can believe it, Frank, um, which was the David Lynch episode, and then episode 52, uh, which was David Cronenberg. So, uh, we this did is the Tarantino f- episode. Uh, yeah, I counted that as a retrospective rather than a top five, though. <clears throat> That's yeah. how I'm making the distinction, I guess, in my head. But yes, we also focused on the tar- on Tarantino and his entire filmography. So tonight, Frank's going to take his top five Ingmar Bergman movies. Um, but before we want to get into that, uh, I'm assuming if somebody's listening to a film podcast that they probably know a little bit about film history. But Frank, I want to just you to walk through who Bergman was kind of what his importance was, what he brought to film and those kind of things for everybody, if you could. So Swedish director spanned, I guess the better part of four to five decades in terms of his, um, I think he started making movies in the forties and he made movies into the late seventies, early Mm eighties. Um, wildly influential in terms of just, um, not only his style, but um, his willingness to incorporate like experimental techniques into his films and his willingness to focus on more like abstract philosophical issues, not just have like a straight narrative. Um, like he plays with perception and identity and reality in almost every one of his movies, at least to a point. Um, and he tackles some pretty, um, pretty weighty, you know, ide- ideological issues like he's very much an existentialist um he you know focuses on kind of the meaning of life and like fear of death and you know psychological issues like self-identification and the idea that someone can have like split personalities and i think that that's a really big point of focus for him in some instances or in some of his movies is the idea that you know people can have like different almost conflicting person like per- personalities within themselves um, sure he, he he really definitely brings psychology i think into filmmaking um yeah it seems like the, there's a little bit of it but i mean it's really 
the fact that you can have Freudian or Jungian interpretations of his films is something that and he and he, and he actively knew that when he's making them I think is yeah. just something that's really different yeah but he does it in a way where it's not so like we we've talked about this before if you look at um the ending of Psycho where it's got the really long sort of this is why Norman Bates is crazy type thing right and Bergman is willing to just like use dialogue and narrative to kind of make you make those determinations yep like there's rarely a scene in a Bergman movie where an actor just kind of soliloquizes about like this is why I'm fucked up it's sort of like you know small hints that are dropped throughout the movie and right it's kind of the situation if they did do that it would it wouldn't be the correct answer it would be you would have to take that soliloquy and realize what the real answer is based off of it yeah yeah that's a that's a good way to put it but um brilliant filmmaker like one of the i think maybe the most talented person ever to film on black and white media um, I think that he, him and um, his long-term uh, cinematographer collaborator, Sven Nykvist, um, do an amazing job of filming, especially like the sky and nature and making people seem like either really small or really large in frame as compared to, uh, you know, just against these black and white backdrops. And it's just stunning cinematography in like every one of his movies. Everything feels really crisp and clean and like it's amazing when you're watching it today. Like I just watched um, the Lighthouse for the second time with uh, with Frankie mm-hmm. the other night, and um, you know I'm watching this film that's shot in black and white on modern, you know, cutting edge technology. And Bergman's movies look just as good, if not better, in terms of their just the resolution and the depth of field, and just the way that everything looks. Like there's definition in everything that you almost forget you're watching a black and white film sometimes. That's absolutely like, true. He gets so much, um, so much like I don't know, like rich depth in his, uh, in his his shots. Yeah. So the the one thing I wanted to follow up with when you were talking about his experimentalism from as a filmmaker during that time, could you just go a little bit more into that of the kind of things that he would do? Um, I mean, there's there's movies where it's really like subtle i guess um where it's just things like like juxtaposing someone talking against a shot of something else like something ruined or an animal or i don't know like having two scenes like butted against each other that kind of like tell you visually like what you're supposed to think about either what's coming or what you've just seen and then stuff that's a lot more experimental where he plays with superimposition and mirror effects in his Mm -hmm. um filming and um shooting things you know at one point in one of the movies we're going to talk about where he films the film um burning up on a uh a projector screen yeah like the film jamming and then like burning like on the projector just to kind of illustrate like it's it's actually in and we'll talk about it like in depth when we get to that movie but just brilliant way of like visually representing this person breaking down and like having like a portion of their personal imagery like destroyed and it's just 
it's so fantastic like the way that he does it and he just you know like there's a lot of things like that like throughout his um especially superimposition he was really big with um filming two shots on top of each other to impose like one image on top of the other right yeah and you're right he kind of really starts the earlier films it seems like what you were talking about is like how one image goes into another image he's he's definitely using like the kind of original like eisenstein um you know a technique of of putting two things next to each other and having it mean something new um but you're right i think he kind of moves into that superimposition as he gets a little bit more comfortable in terms of filmmaking and adds a whole nother dimension to that and that's just from the filmmaking standpoint in terms right. of representation not even getting into the other things you mentioned in terms of the psychology and the philosophy behind the stories themselves um <clears throat> yeah it's it's amazing watching his movies um i do have a couple more questions for you i i am going to make a disclaimer though because i we didn't talk about this beforehand uh one thing i'm going to not do is talk about the movies and the meanings behind the movies because if if i get into that trap which i'll 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 tend to do a lot uh, and i'll force it sometimes because that's what i find interesting if i do that though we'll be here for five hours um talking about these movies because these movies all have so much depth to them that it's impossible to do that in a short amount of time so we are going to say focus on just um the the tonight uh just the 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 positives of these movies and what makes them kind of like so great um but i do want to talk as you as you were talking about all these experimental things um both in terms of storytelling and filmmaking how do you see his I'm sure the answer is going to be pervasive, but if you can give some examples, where do you see like his influence um, in the modern day? I mean, you can look like 10 years after, I think you see early Polanski, um, like three men in a wardrobe and knife and knife in the water, uh, cul-de-sac. I think you see a lot of influence, um, especially in terms of like shot composition. Um, you look at stuff like in the seventies, I mean, Wes Craven, like, basically remakes one of his movies sure. um i think kubrick learned a lot from bergman just in like the patience of letting a shot just develop um i think that while bergman was influenced by kurosawa i think that later kurosawa was influenced just as much by bergman like i think that they were mutual i mean i know they were mutual admirers of each other but i think you watch something like rashomon not rashomon you watch something like ron yeah um and you can see um just in the way that he filmed some of those scenes especially like inside the castles where it feels very reminiscent of stuff from like maybe the seventh seal or virgin spring yep um yeah and i think just in general of like people becoming more accepting of complex psychological issues being like an okay thing to talk Mm -hmm. about in a movie yeah um i also think there's a lot of influence from people like um or influence on people like, say, like John Cassavetes or um, maybe even like uh, Michelangelo Antonioni, just with the way they film like faces in the body, where mm. Bergman loves like a really hard close up on somebody, mm-hmm. like that's unflinching without like a lot of makeup, where you can see like the physical imperfections of their, like their skin or their face, and it's just holding that shot to like build tension and like develop character and you know you you see that a lot more 
Bergman yeah. also like would take weird, unconventional angles to film things. Like he does a lot of like low angle shots upward onto people. Um, he does a lot of shots through th- other things, like through windows, through slats in like a barn or whatever, mm-hmm. through like trees or foliage. Yep. Um, to obscure like a portion of the frame to further illustrate like what he wants you to focus on and. A lot of times those things that he obscures with, I feel like have some symbolism towards, no, absolutely. you know, the overall, like again, and we'll talk about it later. Like there's a scene where a man is watching a scene of unfold from his past and he's leaning against like this ruined house and it's been burned down. And like, this is a memory that he's like kind of burned out of his mind and just the way that it's filmed and the way that his like hands like caress, like the, like this charred wood that's just, it's just brilliant like all that stuff yeah the only one that i'll add there is i think david lynch is probably berman might be one of the bigger filmmaking influences on lynch i think when you look at the way he uses sound and silence particularly or um ambient noise at times um and the way he'll move between silence and sound and silence and sound and then a movie that you're not going to necessarily talk about, um, although there is a movie that's on the list that you can see some of these kind of like what are now kind of called Lynchian ideas popping up. Um, but uh, Hour of the Wolf um, particularly is like something that's straight out of David Lynch. But also when you mentioned the idea of doubles, it's that's another like big thing that right. Lynch took and like, uses throughout the rest of his career a lot of times. Yeah, the idea of the doppelganger. Yeah, yeah. Um, so before we jump into your five movies how difficult was this to do considering his filmography at least like 15 to 20 other movies i think at least 15 that i could have put reasonably on a top five bergman list and been happy with yeah um it was difficult to leave certain things off and there's like some small movies that i really love um that aren't really i guess considered like his greater works that i didn't Mm -hmm. put on there Mm mm-hmm um, like and we had, um, I really like Sawdust and Tinsel, and I really like The Magician, and I don't know that they're necessarily considered like major works of his. Um, there's one that's about a nursing student falling in love that's from like, it's one of his first movies, I think it's from the 40s. Um, I can't remember what it's called, but that was really good. Um, I have it on like one of those Criterion, like early Bergman box sets. Um, I thought about putting Autumn Sonata on. I thought about putting Smiles of a Summer Night. Mm Kind of difficult to not put Seven Seal on there because that's probably the most famous Bergman movie, like in total. Um, and some stuff we'd already talked about, like Winterlight, we've already discussed, and so I didn't really want to put that on there. And I, I really love Winterlight a lot. Um, he just he has so many movies that are just really great. Like, there's no no bad movie in like Bergman's catalog. Right. Yeah. Even no, though I'm not, I'm, I'm not a huge fan of Hour of the Wolf, but <laughs> like, it's still like, I, I can recognize it's like brilliance in terms of its visual imagery and stuff. So. Yeah. Frank and I do not agree on Hour of the Wolf. It's one, probably one of my favorites of his and, and Frank is not as keen on it <clears throat> as I am. But I like it for those really bizarre, like, 
off the wall, like experimental, like ideas that Lynch, honestly, Lynch just stole some of them, I think. Um, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So let's go ahead and start with your number five movie on the list. It is his last film um, in yeah. 1982, Fanny and Al- Fanny and Alexander starring Pernilla Alwyn, Bertel Gouvet, Gunn Walgreen, and Bourget Alstead. Uh, it has a 100% on Rotten Tomatoes from critics and a 94% from audiences. You want to go ahead and tell the audience uh, the premise of this movie and then what specifically about this movie made you put it on the list? So this was originally conceived as a television miniseries. Um, like three, no, I'm sorry, five or six hours long, I think, mm-hmm. in total. Um with the idea that they were always going to cut like a theatrical release that was shorter. Um, so the one that you and I watched is the theatrical release, which is still a long movie, like, well, like yeah. 190 minutes or something like that. Something like but that. Yeah. Not, it was like yeah, three hours, 10 minutes. Yeah. Yeah. Not, not nearly like a, a six hour epic. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of a, it's a really personal film for him. I think like it's sort of based on his childhood in certain ways, but it follows um, this, this kid who has this boisterous imagination and like his life, like growing up and um, being forced to live with someone who kind of punishes him for having that imagination and um, just the horrors that he kind of lives through and like trying to grow up like against that backdrop, but juxtaposed against kind of an idyllic, like early childhood, um, which is like a warmer, I don't know, more familial, um existence before his his father passes away and then before his mother marries this guy who's kind of a not even kind of he's just a tyrant basically like an absolute i guess empiricist and someone who doesn't like tolerate any kind of i don't know like imagination or frivolity or anything yeah um super long movie Mm -hmm. uh it was difficult this was the one that I really struggled with because I felt like I couldn't leave it off because I think it is like in some ways, one of his most personal films. Absolutely. Um, it's also in my opinion, like just a demonstration of how amazing like Bergman could have continued to be had he been directing films in color. Um, Cause it's a beautiful movie and like some of the shots in this movie, um, especially like the the richness of the colors and just, I don't know, there's just some stuff in this movie that's like absolutely mind blowing and how beautiful it looks. Um, and I like the idea of like, cause a lot of his, a lot of his stuff focuses more on what I would consider to be like, like general neuroses of like the modern era maybe, or something like that. Sure. Like, I'm afraid of like nuclear annihilation. I'm afraid of death. I'm afraid of being alone. I'm afraid of getting old, like all of those things. I'm afraid I won't be remembered. And this one is more like the opposite of that, which is this very personal thing of like, how do you be an artist in a world that doesn't accept art kind of, or that doesn't like embrace like creativity. Yeah. The theme is secondary to the story. I think in this. Yeah. I, I think so, yeah. I mean, I think they're just... I, well, I mean, it's 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 melded, I guess. But, I mean, I, I feel the story and the narrative takes takes precedent over the thematic aspects of the movie. 
um, where I think the thematic aspects are front and center in a lot of his older black and white things. Yeah, yeah I think it's definitely more subtle in that yeah. respect. I mean, right. it's not like beating you over the head with it, but I also think that, you know, I mean, you're rooting for Alexander basically to, like, succeed. Yeah, no. Yeah. Bergman wants you to, I think. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, you, I don't know if you know much about this. Like, you, you've made reference to the idea that it's very personal. I mean, this definitely, to some degree, is based off of his life. Um, like, he he developed the idea because it's based off of, to some degree, like, loosely off of him and his sister. And, um, and uh, he also i think had like a domineering presence in his life that didn't want him to follow like an artistic route and so i and and i'm i'm going to assume it was probably religious based in some way um just because of the story of this um it would make sense considering what you can kind of tell his questions and doubts are in terms of religion in other movies so i do think this is highly personal to him um when he wrote this in terms of his own childhood and upbringing and stuff like that even if yeah. it's not even if it's not 100 percent accurate in terms of like what his childhood was like but it was well right enough. i mean right like you still have to make it fantastical in some ways sure sure um yeah i, I don't know i mean i this was one of like the last I went through a long period of time where I was watching all of Bergman's films, and this is one of the last Bergman films that I saw for the first time. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So this is like one of the last of his movies that I actually watched myself, um, mostly because the only way it was available for a while was in the six-hour version, and I didn't couldn't bring myself to do it. <laughs> right. Um, I don't even know. I don't know if I ever saw this for rent on VHS. I think the first time I had the chance to see it was when Criterion released it in, like, the early 2000s. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I, I love the way it looks. Again, like, it's, I think, his most brilliant color film um, and shows, like, how masterful he could be, you know, even away from filming just in black and white. Um, I like the, I mean, I think the performances are pretty great in it. I especially think that, um, shit, what is that actor's name? Um, the guy that plays the bishop, I I can't remember. I can't remember which one that is. Yeah. Um, and there's a lot of like small guys that are small people in small performances that were like major contributors to his overall work. Like um, like Gunnar Bjornstrand is in it, and he's the guy from like all like so many of his early movies, like the priest in Winterlight and the um, the son son slash husband in Wild Strawberries. That's that guy. Mm -hmm. Right, that um, yeah, Gunnar Bornstein, yeah. Oh, I just, it's a really good movie. I, it's probably hard for people, I think, to maybe to sit through because of the runtime, but I think that if you can watch it in, like, if you basically watch up to where the household changes from yeah. the death of his father to him moving into, like, the stepfather's house, if you watch it in, like, two parts like that, that it's, it's easier to <laughs> easier to break up and easier to watch. I think that's where you started to get interested in it, right? It's when that transition happens, yeah. yeah. I mean, 
I, I thought this was – I thought that especially the first half of it and, and some elements of the second half were overly long. I thought there were parts that drug. <clears throat> it's a beautiful movie. Um, like, pretty much everything about <clears throat> the set design, like, you know, his filmmaking. Like, it's 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 incredible, like, as a visual. Um, you know how I feel about kind of drawing room type stuff at times right. where it's like it can get really tedious and, and, and dull for me. Um, we've been through that in a few different movies, but, um, yeah, that's when I thought it picked up was that kind of like that once there was almost like a villain introduced, um, it, it picked up a little bit for me because then I, I thought you could see the more psychological implications and stuff, the stuff that I find interesting in his movies. I thought you could see that, um, manifesting itself a lot more. Yeah. So I became more interested in it. Um, I think this goes to show, and I was, uh, there's another example that like, it's like right on the tip of my tongue and I can't think of it, but I, I thought what was impressive about this movie is you see all the experimental stuff he's doing in the fifties and sixties. And then this is the latest movie. Yeah. Cause Autumn Sonata was before this. So this is the, well, this is last movie. So it's the, it's the, it's the latest I ever saw in film. And I think it's fascinating to see he he could have been doing what everybody else was doing if he wanted to and perfecting it and he chose not to do it yeah i i see what you mean like this is like this is much more classical in the way that it's filmed a lot of ways even the you know and it's like he could have been doing that and nailing it every single time and chose not to do it yeah it's almost like the master like just going and you know um you know, doing all this kind of like abstract stuff and then suddenly going and painting like, you know, the same paintings that people have painted for a hundred years and, and, and doing it absolutely perfectly. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a good analogy. Um, I think it's also because it deals with like, you know, I mean, like this is a kid that sees like ghosts and sees like supernatural things and fantastical things. And is he really seeing them? And how is he like reconciling that with reality? And I think that Bergman like making like filming something in this really classical style is kind of a way to maybe reflect that to you, the viewer, mm. like as whether or not you're actually like sure I supposed to believe what you're seeing. Maybe I, I I don't know. Yeah, yeah. This definitely is about artistry, like yeah. like thematically, and yeah. No, it's it's a thing. If I could sit down and force myself to watch it again, there's there's a lot to take from it. Looks like like every one of his movies, you can see different things every single time you watch them. Um, and and this is no different in that regard. It's just the story itself. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. For me, it would maybe prohibit me from doing that, but maybe someday. Okay. All right, you ready? Um, so right. number four on your list is Through a Glass Darkly from 1961, starring Harriet Anderson, Gunnar Bornstrand, Max von uh, Sydow, and Lars Pasgard. It has a 100% on Rotten Tomatoes from critics and a 92% from audiences. Uh, Want to tell us a little bit about it and what specifically you liked about it so much? Um, so this follows kind of a loose thematic trilogy of films um, that begins with uh, Winter Light and then ends with The Silence. Um, or maybe this is the first one in Winter Light is second. I, I think that's how it goes. So anyway, there's a trilogy of films that kind of deal with um, one's place in the universe and like personal 
identity and want someone's relation to God, basically like how you as an individual can relate to like a greater power. Um, so Harriet Anderson is a schizophrenic, I guess, maybe bipolar. Um, she definitely has like some elements of multiple personality. Um, her and her husband have come to an island to stay with her brother and her father. Um, her father being a like w- renowned novelist. Um, she's recently been under um, psychological care for this uh, diagnosis of being schizophrenic, where she's received um, electroshock therapy. Um, and basically, it's just kind of, I feel like sort of a condemnation of like, some modern like psychological techniques but also a condemnation of someone's inability to embrace modern psychological techniques because of their focus on like greater power or like religion as being like a healing factor um and i think that i mean it really is like a psychological study mostly of her but also of how these three men in her life who all view her differently, like relate to her and sort of, sort of identify themselves and like how they relate to her kind of like, absolutely. like the, her, her younger brother who sort of views her as like a sexual object, but also like Mm -hmm. a mother replacement Yep. and like his best friend to her father that kind of views her as um, a burden in a lot of ways. And, something that like he's unwilling to like confront really yeah and as a cold as a very cold and personal study uh which is one of the big turning points of that whole movie kind of is when she finds out that he wrote in his journal that he was interested in basically observing what happened to her as she continued to go crazy which is really devastating part of that movie which is also a theme that comes up in a number of Bergman's films, mm-hmm. which is, is it okay to exploit the individual if the greater good, you know, or if something like greater comes out of it by exploiting someone's like personal trauma, like, sure. does it make it okay, you know, from an artistic standpoint to do that? <clears throat> and maybe something that Bergman himself, because he made such like personal films and such like small film, not small, but intimate films about, um, you know, like really emotionally devastating ideas, sure. you know, cause in this movie alone, you have like a rejection of the spiritual and you have incest and you have, um, I don't know, like, you know, um, what's his name? Sadow plays, uh, Harriet's, um, husband and wants her to get better, but refuses to, basically give her anything like he's very rigid in the idea that like you have to come and get this treatment and this is what's going to make you better and in a way like kind of drives her away from him just because of his like treatment of her um and all in the span of like you know i mean bergman's not a very long-winded guy like we just talked about what's probably his longest movie but this movie's a brisk you know 90 minutes oh yeah almost all of them are (laughs) very much about like getting in and telling you the story and getting out yeah. Um and a lot of stuff here like when she's going through um one of the 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 episode where she ends up like committing incest with her brother 
Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of imagery there that's just like so freaking devastating. There's like the encroaching thunder thunderstorm in the background yeah. with like the lightning strikes in the clouds, and there's this dilapidated boat that's just like left on the shoreline. That's <laughs> you know where you can see. Right, I know <laughs> that Sorry. that wasn't really on purpose. Sorry, right. Um, you know this boat where it's like got these like hidden areas and stuff, and you can see where it was once majestic, but now it's kind of ruined and it's like flooded inside and that's where she's you know basically hidden from the eyes of everyone where the thing with like their play that they do early in the film that kind of that is like a direct direct criticism of their father and his um basically sacrifice of love just for personal gain i want to go back and watch that again at some point because i think that play it's like the literary like student in me like from like years ago wants to go back and just look at that play again because i could write a research paper just on the way that play is used in that movie and i haven't thought it through completely yet so i'd have to go back and watch it a couple more times but that play i think is one of the keys to that movie yeah and like there's so much going on inside because Minas is the one that writes the play and i think you get like so much in that play about all those characters on the well at least about the father him and and the sister um in that play in terms of like you know how he perceives them and how he thinks they perceive others and uh, it's yeah yeah it, it it's so subtle and it seems like insignificant when it happens to some degree and I think it's extremely important, yeah. And that and also, like, I, I think that's incredibly important. I think the sort of, like, yellow wallpaper idea of mm. God being behind, like, the wallpaper in the attic. Yep. And it's this, like, monstrous spider, kind of, where yeah. this representation that when it was this hidden thing, it was, like, holy and, you know commanded like worship and then when it's like revealed of what it is like it's so far worse yeah like it's like a horrifying it's just like almost like 50s like sci-fi monster type thing mm-hmm. and then at the end like no matter like how terrible the father is you know him having the conversation with me like that's that's all that kid wanted was like just to have a talk with his dad Right. And it took like this entire like de- basically destruction of his family. To get right. To yeah. Where... This psychodrama had to play out for his father to actually say something genuine to him. Yeah. 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 I actually think that you learn more about all those men. I think it's more of a study of them than it is of her even. Um, right. Like I said, I think she's a, I think she's almost like a dark mirror. Like uh, yeah. you know, not to whatever, like, just looking at the title of the film, I think she's that dark yeah. mirror that like reflects back to them like what their own failings or yeah. desires or yeah. inner like things they won't even speak to themselves. And um, I, mean, yeah. I think it's brilliantly done. Um, again, there's a lot of stuff in this movie the way that it's filmed, especially the way he films that that fucking skyline off the coast like yes. constantly. It's just yes. amazing and yes, just the way the clouds roll across and the way that he tracks like people walking on that beach is just it's it's brilliant it's beautiful and um i don't know i, I love that movie a lot i had this is this is one of the ones i had not seen um this and this and fanny and alexander well no three of them i hadn't 
I had not seen this, and um, this is my second favorite movie, like on on this list. Like I, lo- I absolutely love this movie, and I'll definitely be watching it again, um, at least a couple times probably in my life. Um, but yeah, I, I I really thought this was excellent. I think there's a lot of depth in this movie, um, and I'm really interested in going back more importantly is looking at the husband character in this that um said Al plays um because i don't know he's the one that like he might be the most manipulative out of all of them um he might be the worst to me out of all of them like the more i think about it um even though he kind of portrays himself as the savior i I, I think there's something just, cor- I don't think he realizes there's something corrupt about this character. And I, I'm fascinated to go back and watch almost like just like the stuff with him again and kind of see how he reacts and all those kind of things. Um, Cause I think it's a really interesting psychological portrayal of how you deal with a spouse or significant other with a mental illness. And uh, there's so many, so many things in this movie that are like worthy of just study. I think it's, it's amazing. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, um, yeah, I mean, I obviously like I I love this movie, and yeah. again, so we had already talked about Winter Light. Yes, and I like I, I like the juxtaposition of those two movies next mm-hmm. to each other because Winter Light is a much colder, more like clinical look. Mm-hmm. Um, at sort of the same idea, but from I, it's kind of the opposite perspective because it's. Um, what's his name, Gunderson or whatever, who's like lost faith in God um, as a priest. And he's just kind of an ugly, like lonesome man and kind of the opposite of like the exuberance of um, uh, Karen or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, Who's legitimately like sick, you know, who's crazy. And I don't know, like that, the the silence is a great movie too. And we'll, we'll talk about that at some point. I'll try and find a way to put it on the list. Um, but if you have the time to watch all three of those movies and you've already seen these two, like you should watch the silence because they really do make a, an interesting, um, trilogy yeah. in terms of like their themes and their performances. Yeah. And as much as Max von Sydow gets kind of like lumped in with Bergman and his movies, I think Gunnar Bornstrand, um, who plays the father in this and the yeah. priest in Winterlight is, um, he's like my like my favorite dude i i love that dude he is so good and so subtle and his facial expressions are like so on point in terms of the subtlety i to me of his acting like um that just stony face but he like can do so much with it it's 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 amazing to watch him yeah he is pretty fantastic Okay, um, so number three on your list is about five years after that, 1966. It is Persona, um, starring B.B. Anderson and Liv Allman. Uh, It has a 90% from critics on Rotten Tomatoes and 94% from audiences. You want to tell us a little bit about the movie and why it made this list? Um, this, this movie was the most difficult one for me to place on the list because in some ways this might be my favorite Bergman movie. Um, I, I think this might be the most interesting Bergman movie, maybe, and definitely the one I think I take the most from like every time I see it. Um, ostensibly the idea of the movie is, uh, 
fuck. I always get those two confused. Liv Allman and what's her name? Phoebe Anderson. Liv Allman is Alma in the movie The Nurse. Phoebe right. Anderson is Elizabeth. The actress. Liv Allman is Elizabeth. Vol- Elizabeth and B. Uh, yes, yeah, yeah. Sorry, I'm I. <laughs> I missed my arrows that said no reversal. <laughs> <laughs> I made these big arrows and I just there I just ignored them. <clears throat> yeah. Right. Um so it's basically just the two of them. They're the centerpiece of the movie. Like 98% of the movie is just them talking yeah. well, mostly just um Liv Allman talking for the most part. Um so Wait, did I get that backwards? After you got it backwards? I have it reversed here. B.B. Anderson is Alma. So Liv Ullman plays... The the stage actress, Elizabeth. Elizabeth, who's a renowned actress who fell catatonic in the middle of a performance. And her doctor has decided that as part of her treatment, she is to go to this cottage on the shore of the ocean or whatever. I don't know what they have in Sweden. Um, and be attended to by a nurse, like a young nurse, um, the Liv Allman character. And Alma, the nurse, basically uses Elizabeth as a sounding board, um, talking about like increasingly personal details of her life. Um, Anderson, almost no dialogue in the movie just reacts with um, facial expressions and sort of like calm detachment while, you know, Liv Allman, while the Alma character is like revealing these like really like personal dark secrets. Um, There's a lot of interplay with identity of the two, including the way that they're dressed a lot of the time, Um, the way that he films them kind of overlapping one or one or another, like one facing one direction, the other facing towards the camera with their yeah. faces like cut in half kind of by either each other or like scenery or the camera itself. And this is a movie when the beginning of the podcast, I talked about like <clears throat> him doing the techniques of like filming the film itself, burning up on the screen and kind of like, um, scoring the film so as it was like running through it has like lines that cut through it that sort of show like the cracking of her personality um, I mean ultimately you know she got pregnant tried to have an abortion didn't succeed at having the abortion had a son and hates the kid that she you know that she bore and can't really reconcile herself with the fact that she hates this kid so I'm going to ask you because I think it's impossible to talk about this movie without like talking about interpretations of it. Mm-hmm. So they're they're the same. There is no two people. There's basically just Alma is the person that she was before she had this kid and what she wants to be again but she can never go back to being that, right? <sighs> like there's not there's it's the actress is just working all this stuff out internally this is like i and the kid can't i, ever I believe that they're the same person yes 
and maybe not even from her perspective. This might be from the son's perspective who can't even like see his mother as anything but like this image that he has because she never lets him get close. Yeah. I mean, it's what I I was laughing about the whole like Alma Elizabeth, like Alma, like this, this Oprah Uma thing that we did at the beginning is because (laughs) like, because it, it does play into the film itself is like, you can't even distinguish between the two of them sometimes um it's like there's times where it's like you you look at like who's on the screen it's like who is it like you know right. which character is that almost like and especially when you take them out of their kind of typical dress and you put them in swimsuits or something it's like well, holy shit like who's who here um and he and he definitely plays with that and i i, I took it as the 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 actress being the yes is being the kind of fictitious one out of the two she's like after the trauma that's who develops is this person who's trying on different roles to some degree um is is kind of how i took it that's why she's the actress kind of um and yeah i don't know it's uh, i i don't really know if i get this movie i'll be honest um i've I've thought about it a lot after i watched it i think that they're the same person why why those two are split the way they are um yes i agree that it's like or it's a kind of a thing where it's like alma the the caregiver is the person she wishes she could be but the actress is the person that she really is I, i i'm really not sure See, I think I I think that the um the BB Andrews the the actress character mm-hmm. um Elizabeth I think that's the character, and I think that it's like the Alma character is that's her persona, that's mm. what she's always presented as this person who's like kind of plucky and sort of like an underdog but has like a positive spirit and you know she's trying to find a way to like regain her voice to be something again. And yeah. she has to go so far back to this person that she was like basically like a decade before to try and find some way to like become that person or become a person again, like be someone that's not at the whim of the director or at the whim of the screenwriter, or, you know, mm. playing a part. Yeah, I can see that. So do you, th- and she's really conceited like she loves herself so much which is why she can't get over the fact that she can't love her son because she finds Mm -hmm. that to be like an an extreme failing of herself and so she can't get past the fact that she can't like overcome this failing right i'd I'd, honestly i'd have to almost like watch it again with that in mind and see like almost test it out in a lot of ways like you talk about Hour of the Wolf being really influential on David Lynch. Like, this to me... Yeah, I mean, that's some of the elements of this, yes, absolutely. Yep. I mean, this is... This is Inland Empire, and this is Mulholland Drive, and mm. this is elements of um, Twin Peaks, like, all pulled from both visually and thematically, and just in the way that, like, he directs these actresses, you know. Yeah. I mean, I think that, like... I think that Lynch, like, probably loves this movie like an incredible amount and was deeply influenced by it when he saw it. Right. Yeah. I can see Um, that. Yeah. Especially parts of Inland Empire, because when I was watching this, 
and I was thinking about you and I discussing Inland Empire, like, mm-hmm. I don't know, whatever, however long ago that's been since we've talked about it. Yeah. Like, just the way that he films um, Laura Dern, you know, in relation to, uh, who's the other, who, who plays the her double? Is it Naomi Watts in that movie? Anyway, whoever, double, yeah, I can't, yeah, I can't. whoever plays the other woman that might or might not be like her doppelganger, mm-hmm. um, it's all very similar. You know, the scene in the, when she's in the manor and she's talking to the old lady from right. Nancy Palmer or whatever, yep. uh-huh. yeah. um, like all that stuff is very reminiscent of things from this movie. So like yeah. you want to talk about just his broad influence, I think that you can see it like 100% if you watch Persona. Yeah, no, I, 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 I can see that. Um, but it's very difficult to like unpack everything that's being told you in this movie because in almost every way this is like his least straightforward and his most yeah like psychologically daring like film Mm -hmm. yeah and it was there's stuff in this movie like there's a pretty explicit scene in the middle of the movie where um alma's relating and a sexual encounter to elizabeth and like parts of that were cut out of the american version and I mean, there was stuff in this movie that was, you know, far ahead of its time in terms of explicitness and was not very easily accepted by, like, culture, at the, the like, you know, the modern world at the time. Yeah, I think it's really interesting. If, if, if that's kind of who she, like, used to be or how she presented herself to the world, what's the deal is... I don't know. I don't. I don't want to talk about it. it, it it's. It's. The, I'd, we'd go on for another ten minutes if I asked that question. Right. Um, yeah. But I, I'm, I'm just wondering. I, I'm just wondering about like the almost the, the stuff with her having sex on the beach, um, and that revelation and the way that the actress character uses it, the Elizabeth character uses it against her, um, in revealing it. Well, but the Elizabeth character didn't know that see that's another reason why i think they're the same person because that letter isn't sealed like elizabeth wants her to read that because she wants her she's trying to evoke a reaction i think out of like who she used to be to kind of like come to terms with it maybe yeah Yeah. all right yeah that's what i'm wondering yeah yeah that that's the first scene that came to mind it was like yeah i think if you could like unpack a little bit of that you could maybe get closer to it but um yeah it's it's a fascinating film and like you said it's um there's a lot going on there and it's like it's it's one of those things where it's like i know it's good i don't know how much i enjoyed it because it's like i need to watch it multiple times i think in order to finally like get it you know like um just because we haven't done this yet, um, I'm not going to go into Pauline Kale's because I think we actually just kind of ourselves said what Pauline Kale said about this movie um, uh, to some degree, only she was a little bit more negative about it in terms of like the the response of the time period. But um, our good friend Dave Kerr <laughs> said that this is Bergman's best film, I suppose, though it's still fairly tedious and overloaded with avant-garde cliches. Anderson and Allman exchange identities to the accompaniment of much musing about art, life, politics, all of it much more obscure than it is strictly necessary. 
So our good friend Dave Kerr. Although I've read some of Dave Kerr's like other reviews of Bergman movies. Yeah. And he's much more positive about them. So it's like, I don't know how you reconcile the idea that this is Bergman's best film, I suppose, though it's still fairly tedious and overloaded. I, I, I don't, I don't, I don't get Dave Kerr like at all. Eh, he doesn't want you to get him. <laughs> right. Dave Kerr is a mystery. <laughs> okay. So let's go ahead and move on to number two here. Okay. Uh, number two is a little bit earlier in his career, 1957. The movie's name is Wild Strawberries. It is starring Victor Herstrom, B.B. Anderson, Ingrid Thulin, and Gunnar Bornstrand. It has a 95% from critics on Rotten Tomatoes and a 94% from audiences. You want to tell us a little bit about the movie and why you like it? Um, so it follows an old man. Uh, he's a doctor and a professor um, coming to the end of his life. Uh, that's being accompanied by his daughter-in-law back to his hometown to receive a accommodation, sort of, I guess, like a like an official title. Now that he's like come to the end of his career, um, a guy that you find has lived like a life full of regrets, and sort of on his trip from back to his, you know, his birth town, like his hometown, kind of like it's it's kind of a an odd like Swedish version of um, Christmas Carol sort of where right. he gets visited by like sure. the ghost of his past and mm-hmm. sort of sees like all these things that now that he's got a different perspective in life that he's come to the end um, yeah. that he's sort of like revisiting like these things and seeing like what could have been and you know what wasn't and being able to reflect upon like you know past mistakes and stuff um, it's really a uh, it's a sad movie, but it's also a really heartwarming movie. Um, like seeing him kind of become like a better man and like sort of grow as a person kind of at the end of his life, like to learn that maybe it wasn't good to be a miser, like emotionally, like towards people. And it wasn't the best idea to, to not be daring and to not take chances and to like let things go. And I don't know. It's, it's, it's really bittersweet, like, as you see it, but it's also, I don't know, just really, there. there's some really amazing, like, experimental moments when um, Bergman films things, like, he films dream sequences mm-hmm. um, that the guy's, like, sort of, like, uh, like, reminiscing and also sort of, like, seeing the future, and I don't know. It's just, it's, it's a brilliant movie, and it's really, really well done, really great performances. Um, particularly the young girl that plays both Sarah, which was like his childhood love interest. Yeah, that's B.B. Anderson. Marrying, yeah, B.B. Yeah, Anderson is marrying his brother and also plays um, this plucky young woman that he picks up as a hitchhiker like on their trip mm-hmm. that kind of like shows him again like the passion and joy of like youth. Um, yeah, I know. I, I, I really, really, really love this movie a lot. Yeah, now that we're putting them kind of near each other here, I realize this is another movie where a father talking to his son for the first time ends up influencing the son and having a positive effect on him yes yeah um and also like kind of the opposite like the son had become the father but now the father's like gained right this, again like i it, it was it well th- this is the last one i watched i actually watched this today before the podcast mm-hmm. very like dickensian just in his yeah. um 
the way that he acts and kind of like his the the scene where he's up on the balcony and um the young girl is below him and she's like it's really you that i loved and you can kind of see like his heart melt and Mm -hmm. i don't know there's just some really beautiful stuff in it and it, it makes you realize that you need to take you need to appreciate things in your life like while you have them and not like try and like look beyond you know whatever like the immediate moment for the future because you might lose like a lot more or whatever. Yeah. I, I don't know if you remember me telling you this when you had me watch this 15 years ago or so that when I watched it, it was one of those movies where it's like, I felt I need to watch it every 10 years because mm. I think I'll take something away from it differently each time. Yeah. Um, and I think that's certainly the case because while I remember the movie, it's like, it felt like a totally different movie watching it again this time. Um, and I found I was much more intrigued by the uh, Marianne Evold story in it than I was everything about um, the professor. Um and I, 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 where I didn't pay much attention to that, as much attention to it the first time around, this time I found myself drawn to that story a lot more. And I'm guessing it's just due to my age. Yeah. And like where I'm at in life. And I found that those irreconcilable differences, like much more interesting, like, you know, between those two characters um, and, and like how they dealt with that. Um, and so, yeah, I thought that was, um, that stood out to me this time. But uh, yeah, the dream sequence is so damn good in this. Like the first dream sequence, like the yeah. the one that's like kind of like almost like ominous and horrifying. Um, I I love that. I think that you you're right. It's a sweet story. It's um, it's kind of like Lynch. It makes me again wonder if like with the idea of straight story, um, if Lynch isn't like almost like inspired by something like this where it's like this journey you know meeting these different people along the way and seeing different things about them um well the interesting thing too with that in terms of the journey is like all the people that he's meeting are sort of metaphors for different points in his life right right like the artist versus the the theologian or whatever and then Mm -hmm. the man who doesn't appreciate his wife and treats her poorly and then Mm -hmm. You know, or maybe he doesn't even understand, like, who she is as a person. And then, I don't know. I yeah. like, the, the, the scene to me that's, like, one of the most powerful is when he's, I don't think remembering is the right word, but when he's, like, envisioning, like, catching his wife, having the affair, mm-hmm. and, like, seeing it from afar, and there he is, and, like, the, the burned-out wreckage of, like, this cottage or whatever, and just, like, the crumbling timbers, and you can see, like, the scorch on the like all of it's just so powerful and just so like depressing to like watch this dude like have to relive like this terrible moment in his life sure um and i find go ahead oh god i was gonna say because he always tried to be such like a pragmatist Mm -hmm. i guess or like have this like almost austere like aloof persona that he just wasn't able to like save his marriage or save anything and like he's not learning that until you know, he's a 70 something year old man, like approaching death. Sure. And it's like, it's one of those movies where it's like, you think he's approaching death the entire movie. Right. You're waiting for it. You're waiting for it. Like, you know, and, um, 
and, and it's probably not far behind, um, you know, like this movie, like, uh, but it, it's interesting is like too like, uh, there's so many interesting things about this, but it's like, it's almost like the, the, the inheritance that takes place from a personality standpoint from mother to son to son. Um, yeah. that's like a through line in this movie because it's Marianne that realizes all of it. Cause she's married to the son. She's been living with his father and then she meets the mother, the, the grandmother that here for the yeah. first time. And then suddenly sees like just this generational, um, kind of like just, pessimism and ennui and hatefulness you know that's been passed along and right, um, like they're, they're, they're looking at these heirlooms and she's like well it's just junk right right yeah uh, uh yeah it's really um yeah that's it's it's a fabulous movie i i i think personally i think it's his it's best movie um it's the one that i've i think i enjoy the most and i think is you know the I think it's a really good one for people to jump into. I think as well, if you want to like watch Bergman um, for the first time, like to me, this is like the one that you can watch and, and, and appreciate like without, if you don't want all the complexity that comes with things like, you know, persona or something like that. Yeah. Um, I agree with that. Uh, but yeah, no, this is, this is a great movie. Um, uh, Bosley Crother, um, who, is the famous New York Times critic from the 40s and 50s. Um, he says that um, if any of you thought you had trouble understanding what Bergman was trying to convey in his beautifully poetic and allegorical Swedish film, The Seventh Seal, wait until you see his wild strawberries. This one is thoroughly mystifying that we wonder whether Mr. Bergman himself knew what he was trying to say. As nearly as we can make out, and frankly, we found The Seventh Seal a tough and comparatively lucid and extraordinarily stimulating film, the purpose of Mr. Bergman in this virtually surrealist exercise is to get at the comprehension of the feelings and the psychology of an aging man. Bergman, being a poet with a camera, gets some grand, open, sensitive images, but he is not fully conveyed clarity in this film this is a common um it's kind of what kale was getting at in a different more eloquent um um philosophical way that i skipped her criticism but this is a common complaint of him during this time period um crothers a really big one that that um hammers this nail is that there is no that the meanings are either hidden to the point where either they're not there or there's too obscure. How do yeah. you how do you yeah. how do you feel about that? So you're reading extemporaneous criti- or contemporaneous criticism, and we're watching these movies with like decades of, with the benefit of distance of like decades of seeing movies that are psychologically challenging and not like you know what I mean Pauline Kael was just watching friggin' Sullivan's Travels probably like the day before she watched this movie like she's not i don't know that like i think he was so far ahead of his time i don't think the critics of his time were able to truly appreciate what they were seeing and truly understand like they didn't you didn't have to know i mean we we know psychiatry just from like going to school and like learning about it like they didn't Mm -hmm. have that benefit you know what i mean like right people weren't raised to be experts on 
not even that like to call us experts, but people weren't raised to have knowledge of those things. Sure. Sure. Not necessarily, and especially not yeah. to, you know, like, you look at people like Ebert as, like, these pioneers of of journalists that used almost like a literary critical approach to looking at film. They weren't just film critics. They were criticizing, like, underlying themes and, like, looking for that kind of meaning and that wasn't necessarily what I don't think criticism was at this point. Like, no, it wasn't. That's what Kale really goes into. Like I said, we would have been sitting here for a long time, I think, discussing her ideas about it. But um, um, because, like I said, she's she's a smart cookie. I mean, she she knows what she's talking about. But um, uh, she goes into a lot of the complexities of it. But uh, no, you're right. I mean, like you know, um, what a lot of people were saying apparently, and just kind of just summarized. Like I think one of her main points is that a lot of people were going with that and you'll hear it today even is like you just got to watch it and let it wash over you like and she said the educated audiences were turning to that mindset just like the mass audiences were when it came to films like this and wanted to defend the film and it's like oh you you just got to watch it watch it and just let it be um and she didn't necessarily believe that and she wasn't as keen on uh persona as some other people were um and she was but she was actually thinking about the movie and like what it was trying to say and stuff like that and um so yeah like it's 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 very common contemporaneously it seems to have this it's basically the the lines were drawn over whether you thought the meaning was too obscure or not um right and you're saying you don't have any problem do you think you would have had a problem with that then if you had to like put on like some sort of hat to like take yourself back in time I can't imagine I would have. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I saw this movie. I've I've seen this movie a number of times. I saw this movie for the first time when I was pretty young yeah. and was pretty impressed with it. Mm-hmm. I mean, probably in my like mid mid to late twenties, the first time I saw this movie. Yeah, that's what I was. Yeah. Not like not like super young, but like, you know, mm-hmm. young enough. Sure. I don't know. Yeah. There's been very few movies where I've watched them in like well, I'm saying take yourself back to 1957. It's like, you know, like, like, could you see yourself being who you are? I'd like, I'd like to think that I would have been pretty educated. Yeah. Or at least like open to stuff. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's a, a, yeah. That's, I just thought it was an interesting question. I, I've never thought about it about myself even. Yeah. I always like to think I'm, I'm progressive, but like, you know, um, then sometimes I catch myself and I think like, oh fuck, I'm the white moderate. Um <laughs> the king bitched about. Um so I uh, so yeah, sometimes I you know, as we get older it's like, you know, I think those things become more difficult. But yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. Okay. Anything else to say about this movie? Nope, I think that's it. Okay. So Number one on your list is nineteen sixties The Virgin Spring, starring Max Bound Seidel. Bergetta Wahlberg and Gunnel Lindbaum. It has an 86%. Oddly, it's the lowest rated out of these five movies from critics. 86% on Rotten Tomatoes and a 92% from audiences. Well, so, people were people were horrified by this movie at the time. That that that's one of the complaints. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, to us, it's nothing. Like, to nothing. It's nothing. It's not. It's nothing now to some degree. Like in the sense of the violence that's in it. Um, 
it doesn't yeah. make any it doesn't make it any less powerful though but go ahead ideologically it's still incredibly powerful it's just yes. that right. we're so used to like the grand grand Grignol, like approach of right. like slasher films that mm-hmm. like this is dainty almost like in comparison in terms of like what you see um it's based on like an old swedish folk song i guess um this young virgin daughter of this prosperous landowner um is going to deliver candles to a church she goes with her housemaid who's secretly like a pagan and a worshiper of the old like nord like nordic gods um Along the way, the housekeeper becomes afraid um, and kind of refuses to continue, but the daughter continues along. Um, The daughter meets these three woodsmen um, and offers to share her lunch with them. Uh, Two of the woodsmen rape and kill the daughter um, and end up like the third one ends up like hastily trying to bury her, but then like they flee. Um, They then an ironic twist of fate like go to stay the night in the daughter's house like with her her family um this is max von Sydow playing like her father mm-hmm. um they become suspicious when the herdsmen try to or the woodsmen try to sell the daughter's clothes to the family and then um the housemaid confesses to the father what happened um the father murders all three of them um, one by stabbing him, one by throwing him into a fire, one by basically like Jason Voorheesing him against the wall. Um, and then they go back to um, the next day to like find the body. And when they move the daughter's body, a spring springs up underneath where her head was. Um, and they, you know, he has promised to like build a church there. So um, really, it's kind of like sort of an anti-religious movie in the sense that like at one point the housekeeper is talking to um what i think you're supposed to think of as um sort of like the the remnants of like odin kind of like wandering the land like the one-eyed god who used to have like all this power and now no one worships him anymore so he's just kind of this kind of like grungy vagabond mm-hmm. um and the power of like christianity in the nordic countries at that time like um where like can you know the will of god and it's sort of like a sod like almost like a um lot's wife kind of i'm not at all that it's like similar to that but you know can you allow for like these terrible things to happen um and let yourself like still love the idea of a higher power if something that's like the closest to you has been taken away um and i think the you know the spring like coming forth from the ground under her head is kind of supposed to illustrate the idea that maybe there can be good things that come out of terrible traumas mm-hmm. um but just best performance by max von Sydow of his entire career just incredibly powerful incredibly moving um again it's these last four movies we talked about have all been an hour and a half or like a little less like it's very brisk um it just it, it tells the story it gets through it there's a couple of scenes the scenes where the entire time when he's murdering those three herdsmen are like incredibly tense and very difficult to watch um the scene where he 
basically rips like the yew tree out of the ground to kind of flagellate himself with it. I mean, that's like just the way that Bergman films the sky and him like a like juxtaposed against the sky, like up on this like ridge. I just I don't know. It's it's pretty brilliant. Um, and like I don't know, like all all, all the performances, it it feels very. It feels very classic and it feels very modern all at the same time. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's not a whole lot of like experimentalism in terms of like his camera techniques and stuff, but right, it but just the, like the psycho the psychological depth though was there in this at different points. Like oh, there, yeah. there's that philosophy that's certainly there, but the psychological depth is there because there's some real uncomfortable stuff with him and the daughter. Yes, <laughs> like real uncomfortable stuff. Um. So yeah, like well, there's a there's a lot of really interesting stuff in this movie too, like beyond just the the story itself. Yeah, but the story itself is also like wow, like wildly influential. I mean, sure. You know, Wes Craven basically ripped this movie off in what is it seventy three, seventy four? Yeah, for Last House on the Left, right? Um. And I absolutely, I love Wes Craven. I hate that movie. Yeah, you love that movie. Where I actually, it's funny because like you had me watch it, I think. It was you. You were Wesley and had me watch it. And um, I, you had told me that you like really disliked it. And I actually found a bit bit more merit in it than you did. Um, even though I don't like it that much but um I mean, it's using this movie the virgin spring to make an exploitation film sure right yeah mm-hmm. yep yeah it might have been you had me watch it after watching the virgin spring because you gave me a, probably a, a few of these bergman movies back then and watched around the same time yeah that's when i was buying like everything criterion and then right. i could buy a new bergman yeah. so bosley crother says that this is a just a Basically, while it, what does he say? Well, it has, um, it's a literal, very harsh, very vivid, and occasionally touching statement of a moral. And he basically just calls it a morality play and says it doesn't have any depth. Well, that's not true. <laughs> I mean, even in its smallest way, like, there, and there's a lot of depth to this movie about love versus possession, about, um, I don't know, like faith versus reality, about, the worship of old gods versus like, you know, like what makes the religion that we, the religions we follow today, what make, I, I, there, there, there's yeah, a lot that's sure. happening in this movie. Yeah. I, um, I think people were just really freaked out by like the graphic nature of everything. Yeah. He, 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 Crother did not like the violence in this. He thought it was, um, he, he thought it was pretty hard. Um, right. Yeah brutality he calls it yeah yeah i mean it would have seemed really brutal in comparison to like what may leave may time. leave one sickened and stunned um is, is how he said is what he said right yeah. which i can see i mean that's true yeah sure i mean i mean there there is something visceral about it despite being this kind of taint for for something in 2020 which is very tame in terms of violence of what we're right. used to nowadays there is something visceral and that is a credit to Sadao. I mean, oh, like, yeah, he's like, amazing in this yes, movie. Yeah, one like, of the best, one, one of my favorite performances by an actor, like in any film ever, I think. Yeah, 
And really, the like the main reason why this is number one, and I I think this is a beautifully filmed movie, and I think it has a very dark, like Brothers Grimm fairy tale feel to it. Mm-hmm. Um, in the way that uh, Bergman films it, but Sadow is just like lights out in this movie. Yeah, no, absolutely, I agree. Yeah. So, my okay. favorite Bergman movie, like I've I've watched The Virgin Spring at least like thirteen or fourteen times, I think. Yeah. I was going to be shocked if it wasn't number one on your list. Uh, one of you know, my probably one of my five favorite movies of all time. Yeah, yeah, I would, I would definitely say that. Yeah, I would definitely say that. I think you drunkenly tell told me that one night, like in a text. Well, I'm sober now, and I'm telling you. It's true. <laughs> uh, okay, so that that ends our um, our classy list. Um, yeah. What what is the what's the what's the last uh, what's the most classy list that we've done? Besides this, hmm, one of those foreign films lists, maybe. Is it the compelling female characters that we did earlier this year? Nah, maybe. Nah. I mean, the foreign films in '95 was was pretty. Classy. Oh yeah, yeah, I, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's true. Yeah, the compelling female leads was classy, yeah. and those those were all like respected movies. I think. Right. I don't know. It's 69 lists I have to think about. It's a lot. I'm sure there's been some classic shit on there somewhere. <laughs> right. Hey, we're doing uh, best cult movies next week, so we're going to maintain Hey, that's that still a fairly classy list, though, I'll, I'll right. say. Like, comparative, like, for what for what the, the topic is, it's actually, right. when you think about it, it's pretty classy. Um, it's true. Um, overall. Uh-huh. <laughs> overall. Um, but yeah, so next week we will be doing the top five cult movies. Um, and then in the month of May, we will be doing, oh, I just sent you this list earlier today, the top five romances. Yep. Uh, we'll be repeating from last year, same time that we did it last year. We'll be repeating the fresh five concept where Frank's going to take us through his top five movies that he's watched in the past few months. Um, and so that'll be just kind of all over the place, probably in terms of genre. And then, and then um, I will end the month with the best musicals of the 1960s, um, which was a randomly generated list. But I'll be interested to see what you come up with. I'm super stoked to do that list. Yeah. I'm not going, oh, yeah, man, the 60s had like some of the best musicals ever. Really? I see. Yeah, I'm, not, was- I'm, not, I'm not good on musicals. I'm not, I, don't, I don't know much about musicals. I feel like people. I feel like this almost feels like cheating to pick this, but yeah, it's fine. Oh yeah, that's I remember we were at the bar. Like, that's what came up when I did the generator. So there's no cheating, but um, but yeah, okay, Sam. I don't oh, see. I don't even know that. West Side Story is that that year that decade, right? West Side Story is in the '60s. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, I have no idea what else. Like I don't know musicals that well. Sound of Music isn't in that decade, is it? Uh, I don't know that it would be on my list if it was. Good, because I don't. I, I don't know if that's sacrilegious or not. I do not. I did not like. Sound of Music's fine, but it's just it's not one of my favorite movies. Yeah, I just. It's know. only got like three songs that I think are really any good in it. So. Hmm. Yeah, I'll be interested to see what that's about. Okay. Um, any um, any final thoughts on any of this, Frank? Nah, this is our first full length podcast done in like quarantine protocols, so it's weird. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's like it went fine. Yeah, I am really hoping um, that the audio quality is a bit better this time around um, from our uh, quick cages, which we yeah. have been doing every week. Um, 
but yeah, this is our first um, COVID podcast, like a full length podcast, um, even though I have no idea how long we've been talking now because I don't have my normal meters in front of me. But um, it's like an hour and 20. Yeah, okay. So uh, yeah, hopefully the audio quality is, is, is decent. I think it's going to be better than Skype because we're using Zoom now. Um, so uh, hopefully that's Chinese not too bad. Stealing all of our so so e- even if our hopefully the the content was classy enough, um, even if the audio is not. So yeah. Um, but we appreciate everybody listening. Um, uh, I haven't been on social media much, which is weird because um, I have like you know we're just inside doing nothing, most of us. But um, so but I haven't been on social media much. So uh, but as always, you can follow us on. Uh, facebook um and instagram um and if you have any specific lists that you'd like to request you can always contact us two guys five movies at gmail.com yep okay so thank you for listening everybody and have a great week be safe Yep. have a good night